Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Unheard Ideas. I'm Freddie Sayers. Whose fault is the economic disaster, if anyone's? That is our question today. It is the story underneath all the other stories. Rising gas prices, inflation, imminent recession, doom and gloom atmosphere that is already affecting us all. So is this a cosmic coincidence, a series of events that we couldn't have avoided? Or have we, in the West, in some way brought it upon ourselves? In particular, has the combination of two years of COVID lockdowns, extreme sanctions on Russia and net zero climate targets combined to create a self-inflicted own goal of mammoth proportions? Here to help us work this out is Louis-Vincent Gave, he is chief executive of Gavcal Financial Research and specializes in looking through the media chatter and analyzing things via the fundamentals. Welcome, Louis. Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you. So there's a lot in our question today. It's a big topic. We are basically yes, looking at who we can blame, if anyone, for our financial woes. But let's just start with one of those elements that I mentioned in the introduction, which is sanctions on Russia. It's been this huge program. In your opinion, have the Western sanctions on Russia actually made the Western economic situation worse? There's no doubt that they have. Uh, there's no doubt that they have, because I think when you look at our economic systems or any economy anywhere in the world, the starting point is that economic activity has energy transformed. And that, you know, without energy, producing anything basically becomes impossible. Now, um, I think if you look at the past 20 years, we've had... 20 years, in essence, of extreme good luck, or at least being very fortunate. Because between 2000 and 2011, China multiplied its coal production by seven times. And so we had a global boom in production fueled by cheap Chinese coal. Uh, then in 2011, China said, I can't do coal anymore. I've got kids dying of asthma. There's so much pollution, I can't even see across the street. So I, I got a stop call. And logically, at that point, inflation should have picked up, economic activity should have gone down. 
But the U.S. picked up the baton by uh, thanks to the Shell Revolution. You had the Shell Revolution, which gave us another 10 years of cheap energy. The U.S. went from producing five and a half million barrels per day to 13 million barrels of oil per day. Natural gas production in the U.S. more than doubled. So we had this Shell Revolution, Shell Miracle, which led to 10 years of U.S. outperformance and 10 years of muted inflation around the world. The problem is, just as the Shell Revolution was starting to run on fumes because of lack of investments uh, and everything else, just as Chinese coal production remained constrained, uh, we decided, and I think, frankly, it was hubris, to go on a two-front war. Now, you would think that if you're, let's say, work in German government, there would be a big sign uh, as you enter the door saying, never before will we enter into a two-front war. But that's exactly what we're doing today. We're having a war against Russia on the one hand and a war against climate change on the other. The reality is, given our energy situation today, we cannot afford this two-front war. I mean, usually most countries cannot afford a two-front war anyway, especially if Russia is one of those two fronts. So, uh, yes, uh, the Ukraine um, uh, blockade has a, a big part to do with this, as does the climate change. The reality is... The end result is energy shortages, energy prices that go up, cons consequent supply chain dislocations. And, you know, if you constrain energy, de facto, you constrain growth. So there's a lot in that. Let's just start with the Russian element. So we are still using Russian energy. It's just become more expensive. Is that essentially the net effect of these sanctions? Or how do you trace from the impact of those sanctions right the way through to I don't know whether it's inflation or increased chance of recession. What, how does the economic impact on us work from those sanctions on Russia? Well, th that's a great question. So th there's two parts. First, it's more expensive. And secondly, it's less secure. If you're today BASF, let's say in Germany, you're not sure that this winter you're going to have natural gas. Last year, this was a question you were not even asking. And when you're any kind of business person, what you hate is uncertainty. What you hate is the inability to know what will happen in six months' time. Now, what we've done in Europe is that for years, we had long-term contracts, long-term gas contracts, long-term oil contracts with, with Russia. And some of these contracts were increasingly priced in euros, right? So if you were BASF, you had a long-term gas contract with Russia for the next five years, 10 years. And because you had a long-term contract, you had a very low price. And again, that price was in euro. Now we've said, oh, we're going to cancel these contracts. And so now we have to buy at spot. Now, granted, we still buy from Russia, but we're buying at spot, which is a much higher price. Uh, and we're buying it in US dollars. And so we're basically having to sell euros to buy, to buy the dollars and, and the euro goes down, which makes the gas all that more expensive. And that is then repercuts. That, that this has repercussions all throughout. If you're BSF, you pay more for the gas. You're going to have to charge more for the chemical products that you, you produce. Who cancelled those contracts? Uh, the European Union. The, uh, you know, what we did in the wake of, if you recall, Russia invades Ukraine, and our immediate reaction was to, in essence, weaponize our financial systems, right? Was to say, we're going to confiscate Russian reserves. We're going to confiscate the assets of Russian oligarchs. We're going to weaponize our financial systems and crush Russia economically. You may remember 
Joe Biden in the Rose Garden coming out and saying the ruble is going to become rubble. Now, Russia's response to this, to this weaponization of the financial systems, to the confiscation of its assets, has been to itself, the only response Russia could have was to weaponize its energy. Um, so on the one on the Western world, we've weaponized our financial system. And on in Russia, they've weaponized energy. All this creates far more uncertainty for anybody trying to do business. And when you have uncertainty, what you end up doing is either you cut investments or you raise prices to make up the uncertainty, which is how you end up in the investment we have now with higher inflation and lower production of everything. Who's going to build a new factory, a new chemical plant, a new, a new chemical plant in Germany or in Britain or anywhere else, when you're not sure that in six months' time or 12 months' time, you might get natural gas? Nobody's going to build a factory, right? You, it, and, and so that's how you end up with much weaker growth. So are you saying we had nice long-term contracts with Russian providers at an affordable price, and we ripped them up overnight to replace them with kind of buying on a day-by-day -day price that the Russians set, and in some cases even in rubles. Yes. So it was very, it was, it was, yes, that's exactly what happened. And in so doing, we've created massive uncertainty for all the producers all across Europe. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this will sort of question whether it's even possible because you don't hear much about these kind of details, but what kind of policymaker in a position of responsibility would tear up a long-term contract which provides reliable, cheap energy and then carry on buying from the same people just at a much more expensive rate? At least it would be coherent if they said, okay, we're no longer going to buy Russian energy because then there'd be a point. But it, it just seems amazing that they did that. The big issue we live with today is that because of the rise of social media, you now have, whenever something bad happens, let's say it's COVID or it's Russia invades Ukraine, immediately there's a clamor on social media that something must be done. So, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, everybody puts a little Ukrainian flag next to their name and pressure is put on Boris Johnson, on Emmanuel Macron, on, on Draghi, on everybody out there. Something must be done. Um, and then you turn around, you all get together and you say, okay, well, what's something? Oh, well, confiscating the Russian oligarchs' assets, that's something. You know, tearing up long-term gas contracts, that's something. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the old yes, prime minister joke, right? Something must be done. This is something. So let's do that without thinking so much about the long-term consequences. And so, yes, you know, if you're a, a policymaker, you know, you feel good. It's like, oh, you know, we're we're blockading Russia. We're confiscating their reserves. We're confiscating the assets of Ru Russian oligarchs. The long-term consequence of it, of course, is that if you're Russia, what's the point of selling natural gas in euros or in dollars if the, that money is just going to be stolen from you? Uh, so you're either going to stop doing it or you're going to insist for payment in another currency, hereby completely upending the global financial architecture. So yes, um, you're right that any policymaker who cares to look beyond the current news cycle wouldn't do this. But we live in a virtue signaling age where you have to be seen to be doing whatever is good on the right here, right now. Forget the long-term consequences. I don't want. I don't want to belittle the you know the the, the terrible Ukraine uh, story. It it is terrible. Um, 
But the reality, you know, let's not kid ourselves, you know, Europe has decided to join with Ukraine in that war, not militarily, but at least financially. Uh, we've completely teamed up with Ukraine in that war. And there are deep financial consequences for this, and they're not very pleasant ones. The phrase, the ruble will turn into rubble, which came from President Biden, doesn't seem to have happened. It's another specific measurement. Now, as I understand it, the ruble is now at highs of maybe even five year plus time horizon. When you say this to people, they will immediately say, ah, oh, but this is a fake number. This is because there's very small amounts of trades in rubles and actually it doesn't mean anything. Is that true? Should we pay attention to the ruble price or not? Well, if, if you have to buy energy from Russia, it's a very real price. Um, you know, if for for all the Europeans who do need to buy Russian natural gas, and given that Europe, you know, Russia is not going to accept euros or US dollars anymore, it is unfortunately going, going to be a real price. But um, I think what this underscores is that we've decided to we being the Western world, decided to bring the fight to Russia on the financial front. We've decided to weaponize our financial system. But we've done this at a time where our own financial balance sheets are really not that pristine. Um, you know, you look at the Western world, partly because of COVID, but even before then, but COVID definitely made our financial situation, whether in Britain and France and the U.S., uh, pretty dramatic, you know, debt to GDP is well north of 100% of GDP, budget deficits of 5, 6, 10% of GDP, current account deficits of 5, 6, 10% of GDPs. You know, you, you look at the twin deficits that the Western worlds are looking into, you know, with this starting point saying, you know what, we're going to start a war, a financial war from this starting point seems very hubristic to me. Especially so against that, Russia actually has a fairly pristine balance sheet, very little government debt, very limited budget deficits, and massive current account surpluses. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's now granted, you know, Europe and the US are financial giants. But at this stage, we're aging financial giants. So it's almost as if you have, you know, a 50-year-old a overweight guy challenging a f but who's you know who's a former great boxer challenging a fairly fit 20 year old uh strong boxer who's who's just up and coming and nobody's heard of that that's the the image today the western world is this old bloated boxer full of former glories you know it's is it the smartest thing to do i'm, I'm not sure that it is but is russia really such an agile fit 20 year old in that analogy. I mean, what's the flip side to this? We, we need to be fair here because Russia is a very small economy compared to both Europe and America. And yes, they have energy that we need, which is a big deal, but that's kind of it, isn't it? Energy and commodities. There's, is there other stuff going on? I mean, what's, what's the other story that we should think about? Um, no, look, I, I'm like you, I'm aware of John McCain's quip that Russia as a country masquerading as a gas station masquerading as a country. Um, and I think that actually belittles Russia. So now granted, to your point, Russia is, you know, pick any commodity in the world and Russia is one of the top three exporters. Now, 
this goes back to the very point I started with. If we were in a world where we'd made tons of energy investments over the past 10 years, if we'd been, if we lived in a world in which, uh, you know, commodities were plentiful and we didn't have to worry about it, then we could definitely afford this, this financial war that we've picked with Russia. But this is not the world we're living in. We're living in a world where for 10 years we have underinvested in energy. In essence, I think, you know, with our underinvestment in energy, what we've done is we've made Putin possible. You know, if, if we hadn't underinvested in energy for 10 years, Putin wouldn't be, and Russia wouldn't be the concern it is today. We could just brush it aside. But the reality is in a world in which energy is massively scarce, Russia is, you know, the world's second energy producer just after the U.S., very, very marginally below the U.S., and so we can't afford to, 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 uh, to ignore it. So that's the first point. The second point, just as, in, just as important, is that the rising economic power in the world is, of course, China. And the goal of the Western world for the past, really, six, seven years has been to try to contain China. Now, what we've done, now, China's number one weakness is its dependency on the rest of the world for commodities. Uh, China just doesn't have enough domestic commodities, unlike, say, the U.S. that has all the commodities that it needs on its continent. China does not. Now, what we've done, the beauty of American foreign policy for 40 years since Kissinger was to separate China and Russia, to bring China into the U.S. orbit and to create a split between China and Russia. We've just thrown that away. We've just married Russia and China. And so Russia independently is pretty weak. You're right. China independently has very weak points. Together, they're almost a perfect couple in that everything that China needs, Russia produces, and everything Russia needs, China produces. And so we've just officiated at their wedding. That's what we've just done. So you're saying that by pretty much ejecting Russia from the Western financial system, we have thrown them into the arms of China because they have no other alternative, and that actually together they can thrive and what? They can outcompete the West, do you think? They can definitely challenge it in, in a number of things. So look at it this way. Today, China imports $8 billion a month, pretty much all commodities from Russia. So that's roughly $100 billion a year of goods going from Russia to China. Now, for China to be able to buy this $100 billion from, from Russia every year, it first needed to earn these dollars. So that, would mean, that meant that China was somewhat dependent on the US. It first needed to go to the US and sell tennis shoes and underwear and t-shirts and whatever else, get money to be able to buy the commodities it needed from Russia. Now, all of a sudden, overnight, Russia tells China, forget the dollar, I can't do anything with them anyway, just pay me in renminbi. So overnight, China's at a $100 billion improvement in, in its terms of trade, right off the bat. Because now, the $100 billion it used to need to earn from the US, it can just print and, and give to Russia. And what's Russia going to do with that money? The only thing Russia can do with that money is buy Russian bonds. Uh, sorry, is buy Chinese bonds. You buy Chinese bonds. So now, you're making the Chinese bond market a, a bigger uh, global market. Now, th the next thing China does, and this is already happening, is it turns to Indonesia and says, Indonesia... I love your coal. Your coal is so much better than that crap Russian coal. 
But Russia, you know, I can pay it in renminbi. So unless I can buy your coal in renminbi, I'm going to just buy more from Russia. Saudi Arabia, your oil, so much better than that Russian crap. But, you know, Russia, I pay for it in renminbi. So unless I can buy your oil in renminbi, I'm just going to buy more from Russia and so on. I'm sure you remember uh, Gandhi's problem with colonialism. Gandhi used to explain the problem with colonialism is all the Indian cotton goes up to Manchester and Birmingham and gets treated into textiles that get sold back to us at a higher price. Well, that's going to be the Russian-China relationship from now on. All the Russian commodities that used to go east. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That, yeah, sorry, that used to go west. All the Russian commodities that used to go to Europe used to be treated and then sold back to the Russians in the form of Mercedes cars or BASF chemical products or LVMH handbags. All this will now be sent to China, transformed into finished goods, and sent back to Russia. So, you know, from now on, you won't be able to buy Mercedes cars or Peugeots in Russia. You'll buy Cherry Automotives or BYDs uh, or SAIC cars or, or whatever else. Um, so yes, what's just happened is Russia is going to become, just like India was an economic colony of the UK, Russia is going to be China's economic colony 
And that's going to make China much, much more powerful. You pushed on a second hot topic for us recently just there. You were talking about how because we had restricted our own energy production or we had not invested in our own energy supply. And I just want to dig into that because it was the second of the themes I mentioned in the introduction. To what extent is this a political ambition based on net zero targets or on you know, climate control targets to underinvest in fossil fuels or gas production or those kinds of things in order to try and you know, ultimately help climate change and, and save the world? Um, is that, in your opinion, what has left us vulnerable? Should we connect those two things or is it just economics? How do we not? You know, how do we not connect them? Look, in 2000, 86% of world energy needs were met by carbon, uh, carbon being natural gas, oil and, and coal, 86%. We decided that, you know, climate change was this massive issue that needed to be tackled. And so in the Western world, we basically made it impossible to invest in carbon and pour money into solar, pour money into wind. We even forwent nuclear, which, you know, as, as a Frenchman, I found abhor abhorrent because that was the obvious uh, answer to all of our problems. But so 20 years later, flash forward to 2021. So 86% was carbon in 2000. We moved to 2021. And with all these efforts, 84% of the world energy needs are still met with carbon. 84%. So we've gone from 86 to 84. All this for that. So, you know, for all, all these restrictions that we've imposed on ourselves, the reality is that alternative energy, it's not that it's the cherry on the cake, it's the skin on the cherry on the cake. It's, it's still to think that we can make the difference for our global energy needs with uh, alternative energy. It doesn't mean that we mustn't try, but let's not kid ourselves that it's going to be a solution over the next five years. It's not. It might be a solution over the next 30 or 50 years. And again, there's and there's lots of reasons to think whether the lack of copper, the lack of lithium, the lack of cobalt, to think that it'll be very challenging. But in the meantime, imagine if you're an oil executive and the government keeps telling you, if you build a new refinery in three years time, in five years time, that refinery will be obsolete because we're going to make all cars electric because this, because that. Why would you build a new refinery? Why would you drill a new oil well? When the government is saying, not only am I going to put extra regulations to make your life impossible, but I'm going to subsidize your competitors, whether wind, whether solar, I'm going to subsidize them until the cows come home. Of course, you're not going to invest. And so this is the situation we're in today, where for 10 years, we've had a dramatic lack of investments in carbon, and we're paying the price. Some people watching this will say, well, what else are they supposed to do? I think we should leave the whole question of climate science to another day, perhaps, because I know there's a, a range of views on how robust that is. But if you if you do accept that there is a danger of global warming and that it's responsible for governments to try to do something about it, didn't they do the right thing to try? Or, or what should they have done instead? What you should do is not fight a two-front war. So you decide, as a politician, what is the fight you want to pick? Do I fight the good fight on global warming or do I fight the good fight against Russia? You know, even Churchill made a deal with Stalin, you know, and Stalin, however you cut it, was a whole lot worse than Putin. So you have to decide, you know, again, you can't fight a two front war, you know, and, you know, De Gaulle used to say, 
you know, politics isn't about choosing between an easy choice and a, and a, and a good choice and a bad choice. It's choosing between two bad choices. So if you assume you could say, okay, today the biggest threat to the world is Putin. So I'm going to fight that fight. Alternatively, you say the biggest threat to the world is climate change, and I'm going to fight that fight. But let's not kid ourselves that we can do both at the same time. The reality is we can't. And so, but we have politicians that are, I don't know if they're lying to us or lying to themselves when they tell us they can fight both, because the reality is it's not true. So let's just put a little bit more meat on this question of, of energy. So the US is basically in a better position because it produces most, if not all, of its own energy. Is that right? Right. And it also has, the US has a very easy solution short term, is that north of uh, its border, it has the one major G7 country that, that is a massive energy producer. Now, the first thing Joe Biden did when he came to power, the very first thing was block the Keystone pipeline. In essence, saying, we're not going to use Canadian energy. So a lot of Canadian energy is trapped up there. Now, granted, Canada is building infrastructure to, to ship it out to Japan and ship it out to China as we speak. But a new administration could come in or even, you know, post-November, uh, you know, the, uh, the Republicans could come in and say, let's build a bunch of pipelines to Canada and let's do it now. And in so doing, really resolve a lot of the oil and the gas issues for the U.S. Right. So the, so US, the US, is, easy U.S. is in a better position. Much Europe better. is really what we're talking about here, because as you said, Germany actually cancelled all of their nuclear reactors after a, a nuclear disaster in Japan, I think it was. And who's doing better or worse? What should we know? What, what about this country, the UK? I mean, we, we sometimes feel quite kind of pleased with ourselves compared to some of the European countries uh, from an energy point of view. Should we be? Uh, well, you could, you're definitely better off than Germany or Italy. And France is also better off because we've made big investments in nuclear, even if half of our nuclears right now are, are off the grid. Um, yeah, the UK, you know, you do have you do have natural gas and you do have the, 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 the North Sea. Having said that, you're still dependent on imports. And you might find yourself in a shortage situation very soon. I mean, right now you've got a massive strike in Norway, uh, which, you know, looks like is, you know, you guys import a ton of natural gas from Norway. And it looks like that might get cut off very soon. So also, there's going to be a lot of other people wanting Norwegian natural gas because they don't want to buy Russian gas. Yes. So there, there's that, too. So, look, the UK in relative terms, yes, isn't the worst in Europe. But that's really like being the tallest dwarf. Um, it's, it's so what's the worst? What's, what's, give us the worst case scenario then. Is it Italy? Is it Germany? And what could the real world effects of this energy crunch be in those countries? Oh, it's very simple. It's I think, look. We're going to come into this winter into Europe with a very simple choice. Do we, A, turn on the coal? And so, in essence, wait, raise the white flag on the climate change fight. And say, you know, we'll push back the climate change goals and we'll turn back to coal. Or do we ration energy? And rationing energy basically means no more energy for industry. And now for a country like, Italy, like Germany, which is, you know, very heavy on, on heavy industry, on things like chemicals, on things like autos, on things like specialty steel. Uh, it would mean an absolute collapse in economic activity. And then you end up with a situation where you have probably double-digit inflation with collapsing growth. Historically, this has not been a good combination in Germany. And Italy also, could we be looking at defaults, at euro crises? I mean, how bad could it get, do you think? Well, the big, the big challenge for Europe now is, a, is, is actually pretty simple, is if you want to keep the euro together, 
the euro has to be weak. It has to be weak for Italy. It has to be weak for Spain. It even has to be weak for France, where, where I'm from. We cannot sustain a high euro. And so you need an ECB that keeps on printing. You need an ECB that keeps on buying the government bonds of Italy or, uh, and France, etc. cetera. Uh, but in so doing, with a weak euro, you make the energy situation worse uh, because you know the energy costs more and more, and you make the inflation problem worse. Um, and so this is this is the predicament that that Europe is in. So once again, you're left with a very clear choice that will be in front of European policymakers this winter. But there aren't coal facilities that can be just turned right back on by winter time, are there? Uh, there's 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 some coal there's some coal based uh, plants actually partly because that is the one silver lining to our fascination with the magic mirrors and the windmills that is that because solar and and wind are infrequent um, sources of power you know sometimes they work sometimes they don't if there's no wind we you also have to build coal fired plants next to them so you have your 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 windmills. And you have the coal fire plants. So we could, you know, we could crank up, we can actually crank up the coal. The problem is where do you get the coal? Historically, we've gotten the coal from Russia. So that's that's not that great. So we'll have to get the coal from Australia and South Africa, which means it's even less green, because you've got to bring it from from all the way over there. So it's so we really raise the white flag on climate change. So that's that's option one. Option two, we raise the white flag with Russia. We say, okay, you know what? Uh, let's let's let bygones be bygones. You can have Eastern Ukraine, and let's get on with it. Um, so that's option two. Option three, uh, we move to ra- energy rationing and a collapse in growth. And the simplest, I think that the the simplest path to get to energy rationing would be to confine people once again to say, okay, you know, let's everybody stay at home. Because okay, you have very we, neatly segued us to our third theme there, Louis. It's you're you're becoming a professional. But before I get on to uh, the question of lockdowns and what impact they may have had, I got to ask you for a prediction. We like predictions on this show because we can hold people to account. You've laid out three options. Which do you think is the most likely? I think the path of least resistance is to embrace coal. Uh, And partly because I'm a firm believer in democracy. And what's going to happen is you're going to have governments that refuse to embrace coal and and stay with the COP26, etc. And they'll get voted out of office. And some guys will stand up and say, you know what? I think we should start coal. And if you vote for me, I promise to have your electricity bill. And a lot of people will say, yes, I'm going to vote for that. First country that we'll see that in? Um, you know, the most sensible countries in Europe, I think the further north you go, the more sensible you tend to be. So it'll be Scandinavia. It'll be, it might happen in Holland in the coming weeks, for all we know. With all these you know, riots in the streets, the government's probably going to have to fold pretty soon. So it could come as early as very soon in places like Holland, Denmark. Sweden, Norway, uh, you know, all, all these places will fold pretty quickly. Lockdowns. You and I have discussed them before. You've mentioned them a little bit during this analysis. How seriously did they affect our kind of economic robustness coming into this crisis? Give us some sense of the scale of what was spent and where they left our balance sheets. If you look at most Western countries, the France, the Britons, the the U.S., you've had increases in debt to GDPs of roughly 20%, right? Now, with that comes an extra cost of servicing the debt, 
right? If, you know, if instead of having 100% debt to GDP, you have 120% debt to GDP, and if your interest rates move from one and a half to 3%, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of money drained out. To put things in perspective, an increase of 50 basis points in the cost of U.S. debt is equivalent to the budget, the annual budget for the U.S. Navy plus the U.S. Marines. So we've just increased 150 basis points on a debt that is now bigger. So yes, um, it does constrain government policy. And the reality is how are we going to pay for this? We're finding out now. We're paying for it through money printing, which fundamentally means inflation and currency debasement. The two years of spending money on COVID policy actually made us quite vulnerable and in a bit of a sketchy position so that when we have a big new crisis such as we now do we're in a in a weak position absolutely look if you could get rich through government spending why wouldn't we have done this before you know why 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 should we have waited for covid to all of a sudden open up this you know magic tree that prints free money with no consequences the reality is we are seeing the consequences today and the consequence is the inflation genie is out of the bottle and let's not kid ourselves that we're going to put back an inflation genie where inflation is running at 8% amidst an energy crisis, that we're going to put the inflation genie back in the bottle with interest rate increases of 50 or 75 basis points. That's not going to cut it. Do you think it will be politically possible, though, to return to interest rates of 4, 5, 6, 7%? Because people just won't afford their mortgages and the whole thing will, will break. So what happens when we get to three, four percent? Our currencies continue to fall, and they fall. They fall against commodities, and they fall against uh, the currencies of countries that have not followed crazy fiscal and monetary policies during COVID. Developed markets are following emerging market type policies, and developed markets have followed far more reasonable fiscal and monetary policies. And so capital is starting to flow. You know, I. I tend to think that capital is like water. It flows downhill and it flows to wherever it's best treated. Um, and today, capital is better treated in emerging markets than it is in developed markets. In developed markets, everything is done to, in essence, proceed to the euthanasia of the rentier, uh, to destroy the savings of, of people who are trying to live on a fixed income. And so, if you have any sense, you, you don't fight those policies. You, you adapt to the policies. And so that means you move to places where your capital is better treated. I mean, in one sense, this sounds technical and niche and it will, you know, it's about emerging markets and capital and it sounds like a financial conversation. But actually, this is quite a frightening and very real political conversation because what you're saying is in numerical terms, as measured by movement of capital, currencies, financial markets, what we're seeing is the draining of power away from the West towards other parts of the world. And we are pretty much watching it happening in live time. Absolutely. Especially if you believe that money is power, then yes, um, you do. And look, let me put it to you this way. We're in the middle of a bear market, right? And asset prices are falling. Bond prices are falling. Equities are falling. Across the Western world, we're in a bear market. Now, bear markets are there for a reason. They're painful, but they serve a purpose. The purpose is to change the leadership from one group of assets to another. Now, the leadership 
of the previous bull markets was the US, partly because this is where the cheapest cost of energy was. The next leadership will most likely be where the cheapest cost of energy is, and that will be whoever accepts to, to use coal, most likely in emerging markets. And you're already seeing that change of leadership in the markets. Emerging markets are already outperforming. This, you know, during a bear market, what you need to do is study where the outperformance is starting, because that will be the leaders of the next bull market. And that emergence, it's, it's, it's happening. It's in emerging markets. So let me ask you to kind of sum up for us. We've looked at the situation in Russia and the sanctions. We've looked at the broader energy policies of the past decades. And now we've looked a little bit at lockdowns and the impact of COVID policy. Overall, do you feel like the economic mess we are in now is largely, or at least to some good degree, the fault of our policymakers? Or do you think that's unfair? Well, yes. I think, you know, we followed for at least a decade crazy energy policies based on wishful thinking rather than physical reality, based on virtue signaling rather than cold geopolitical and geostrategic thinking. So that's the first problem. We followed crazy fiscal and monetary policies based on the premise that inflation can never come back, which is was hubristic as as could be. So, you know, you know, if you follow crazy fiscal policies, if you follow crazy monetary policies, and if you follow crazy energy policies, I, I don't think you should look anywhere else but yourself if you end up with a really pretty poor outcome. Uh, and that's where we are. And then you try and tackle Russia in a war situation at the same time. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Louis-Vincent Gave, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Louis-Vincent Gave, the CEO of GavCal, a financial research house. He was making the case that the economic trouble we find ourselves in, which evidently is pretty serious, is not some kind of accident, but actually is the direct result of policy decisions that our leaders have taken over the past decades, and in particular over the past two or three years. That makes it, in my book, a political question, and probably there are going to be some angry voters in countries across Europe and across the West in months and years to come. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard Ideas.